You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and it's uh, great to be with you this afternoon. Thank you for being here. Have you ever been scammed? There's an article making its rounds on the internet right now, you might have read it, about a woman who was scammed for $50,000. Now, to her credit, it was a pretty elaborate ruse that involved people pretending to work for Amazon, the Federal Trade Commission, and even the CIA. So, okay, we'll give her some grace. But here's the kicker. She's a personal finance journalist for New York Magazine. So if anyone should be able to recognize a scam, it should be her. And that's what a lot of the article is about. It's her kind of ruminating over this question of what does it say about me that I was scammed? But as she researched it, she found that this kind of deception is more common than she thought, and maybe we think. Financial losses from scams are uh, rising rapidly year over year. And she also found that there are a lot of people like her who get scammed, people who are well-educated and relatively affluent. She writes this, I felt a guilty sense of consolation whenever I heard about a scam involving someone I respected. If this could happen to them, maybe I'm not such a moron. Well, the reality is we are all susceptible to deception. If the age of social media hasn't proved that to you, then buckle up because the age of AI certainly will. But I actually want to suggest that our susceptibility is rooted in a far more ancient and a far more insidious deception. One that affects every single one of us. And now I recognize I'm starting to sound like a conspiracy theorist. (laughs) So let me explain. Back in Genesis 3, immediately following the creation account, we read about the first lie. Satan, in the form of a serpent, you probably know this story, he comes to Adam and Eve and he convinces them to eat the fruit from the forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit. God had told them, you can eat any fruit in the garden except for this one. And he said, if you do that on that day, you shall surely die. But then Satan tells them, not only can they eat it, but if they eat it, they're going to become like God. And they won't surely die. So, they eat the forbidden fruit, and sin brings a curse upon themselves and the world. They and the cosmos with them are separated from God. And since he is the source of all life, they become like a plant pulled up out of the soil. They wither up and die. And that curse has been with us ever since then. And the problem here is that it's not just them that fell for that deception. Every one of us are born into that same lie. We are born thinking that we can find life outside of God. Today, we're continuing our sermon series in Exodus, and we're coming to the final plague, the death of the Egyptian firstborns. And it is a final strike against 
Pharaoh and the uh, rival kingdom of Egypt. And this plague's message is clear, and it's appropriate today as it was then. Don't believe that age-old lie of the serpent. Yahweh is the Lord of life. There is no life outside of him. So if you would, please turn with me in your worship guides or in your Bible to Exodus 11. Exodus 11, we're going to read the whole chapter, which is thankfully short. (laughs) It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be such a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me and say, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord of life, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this afternoon. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. While we've been in this uh, sermon series for the past couple of weeks looking at the plagues, I've heard several of you say, um, or you've expressed confusion and maybe even some disbelief about how God is portrayed here. I've heard some of you say that it's hard for you to see the Jesus of the Gospels in the Yahweh of the plagues. And if you struggled with that over the past nine plagues, then uh, this tenth plague is probably going to push you over the edge. God is commanding the death of children. And if that horrifies you, I think it should. In fact, I think that Moses has a similar reaction in verse 8 when it says that he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. He's livid. He is angry. But it's instructive that his anger isn't at Yahweh, but at Pharaoh, who through his stubborn refusal to let the people of Israel go has invited this awful plague upon upon his people. And so what I think this tells us then is that the shock and the anger that may rise up within us as we read uh, this this part of Scripture or others like it in the Old Testament, our anger and our frustration shouldn't be directed towards God, but rather it should be directed towards sin and Satan. 
And so to consider this, what I want us to do is I want us to look at two things about this plague and what they tell us about sin. First, I want us to learn that sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. This final plague is essentially a battle of the firstborns. Back in Exodus 4, Moses tells Pharaoh on behalf of Yahweh, Thus says the Lord, the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Yahweh throws down the gauntlet, telling Pharaoh, essentially, you obey me and live, or you disobey me and die. And obviously, he chooses the latter. But the death of the firstborn isn't just, uh, it's more than just a physical strike of judgment. It's also a symbolic strike of judgment. We've talked about this the past couple of weeks, about how uh, the plagues are multifaceted. At once, they're bringing about the physical conditions that are needed to liberate the people of Israel. But also, they're communicating symbolic messages to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and even to us today. So what's the symbolism here? Well, you see, the designation of firstborn wasn't just about birth order. It was a title of honor and responsibility. The firstborn of a family would receive the majority of his parents' inheritance. And it was his responsibility to then steward that inheritance to uh, increase the honor and the name of the rest of the family to see for their well-being. As such, the firstborn of a kingdom were symbolic representatives of the future health and strength and prosperity of the kingdom. So you can imagine what this is saying when God eradicates this firstborn generation. He is decisively showing Pharaoh and the people of Egypt that there is no life outside of him. He and he alone is the Lord of life. Outside of him, there is no strength, no future, no hope. That's only found in Yahweh. And I want to suggest that this message is still relevant for us today. We don't have a state religion like they did in Egypt. We don't worship the president like we worship Pharaoh, or like they worship Pharaoh. But I think it's naive to act as if our society is completely religiously neutral. I want to suggest that it encourages self-worship. You are sovereign. You determine reality. Your purpose in life is to do what you want, to do what makes you happy, to do whatever brings you fulfillment. That is our functional state religion. This, of course, isn't new. This is just a modern manifestation of that old lie from the serpent. God only wants to hold you back. If you eat the fruit, you'll become like him and you'll live, truly live. But I think that we realize that as a society, this isn't working for us. We're sick, we're tired, we're anxious, we're sad. What if, like the plagues, these uh, are signs for us that there is no life outside of God? What if these are signs, are a warning to us that living for ourselves only leads to death? Friends, this is why you and I, as the church, are called to be like the Israelites were to the Egyptians. 
a set-apart people who become living testimonies to the fact that full life is found not within ourselves, but within Christ. So the first thing we see is that sin leads to death. Moving along, I want us to see another thing. I want us to see that sin will be punished by God. If you read this plague in isolation from the rest of the Exodus narrative, it's understandable that you would balk at the severity of what's, being, of what's going on. But you see, the death of the firstborn of Egypt is an act of judgment for how the Egyptians had treated the Israelites in their long history with them. They had enslaved and harshly oppressed them for hundreds of years. And part of that harsh oppression was genocide. If you remember back to Exodus 1, uh, it starts with Moses being put into the Nile. Why? Because the baby boys were being drowned in the Nile. The the Egyptian pharaoh at the time said that all of the uh, baby boys in Egypt would be drowned. And so Moses is put into a basket and spared. Back when God established his covenant with uh, his people, with Abram, back in, in Genesis 12, he tells Abram this, he says, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. This plague is God making good on that covenant promise. God is avenging his people here. Now, I recognize that that may still not satisfy you, How could a a good, loving, merciful God do something like this? Well, I think it's important for us to remember that though love and mercy are certainly one of God's attributes, they're not His only attributes. God is also holy and just. And all of His attributes are inseparable. God can't turn up one in order to turn down the other. He can't Uh, turn mercy way up in order to turn down justice or vice versa. So the question then is, how do these all hang together in this plague? Well, let's start with holiness. Holiness refers to God's complete moral purity. He's perfectly good. There's no evil and no wrong within him. And one of the ways that God's holiness manifests outwardly is injustice. Psalm 99 speaks about this. It says, The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Holy is he. Sin, then, is an affront to God's holiness. It goes against God's nature. And it also goes against the way that God created the world to function. Sin is opposed both to him and to our well-being so god can't ignore it he can't just wipe it under the rug that wouldn't be just nor would it actually be loving have you ever been around kids uh, who've never been disciplined kids who've uh, been so sheltered um, from the consequences for their actions they're like little mini terrorists aren't they I would know because I was one in some ways growing up. Usually, uh, usually 
these children's parents think that they're being loving by shielding them from the repercussions of their actions, but in fact, they're not. They're not loving them at all because those kids will eventually grow up, and when they grow up, they'll have to experience uh, the repercussions for their actions on their own, and when they're an adult, the stakes are so much higher. We all know people like this, people who once they get to adulthood and they experience the consequences of their actions, it breaks them. So parents should discipline their children, not out of anger, not out of malice, but instead out of care and love for the future well-being of their children. Similarly, God's judgment of sin is angled towards the greater good of discouraging evil and safeguarding his people and his creation from evil. Now, Again, I recognize that you may agree with this intellectually, but it still sits uncomfortably within you, this death of the firstborn. And as I said earlier, I think that's not only fair, but I think it's right. We're supposed to be shocked. We're supposed to be even horrified at this. I've wrestled with this text all week, and I've felt these same things. But I do think that it's revealing that we're often tempted, that I am often tempted to turn my anger at God and not at sin and Satan and even the sin that I see within myself. In the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, there's a scene where some of the top scientists and engineers have gathered to talk about how um, they're going to, they're talking about what happened, they're talking about how they're going to mitigate this nuclear disaster. One bureaucrat tries to downplay what's happened. And he says that essentially the the radioactivity around the destroyed nuclear plant in Chernobyl was similar to that of just getting an x-ray. So if you're comfortable with going to the doctor, then you should be fine with what's going on there. You shouldn't be that worried about it. But there's one scientist who knows better, and he's frustrated because people aren't getting the gravity of the situations, and they're not dealing honestly with what's going on. And so he puts down his hands, he stops everyone from leaving the room, he stands up, and he says, it's not like getting one x-ray, it's like getting four million x-rays at once. So much so that if you're exposed to this radioactive substance on the ground, you'll die. Too often, friends, we are like the bureaucrat downplaying the toxicity of sin. We act, that, uh, we're, we act like we're basically just good people, and sin is just a momentary deviance from that. It's just a, a momentary lapse of good judgment, or it's just simply a mistake. Or we try and downplay it by uh, doing the comparison game, looking and saying, like, yeah, I, you know, I've done some stuff, but I'm not as bad as that guy, so maybe I'm okay. We also downplay it uh, by trying to explain sin away. We look and say, well, we're modern, we're modern people. We've advanced beyond this archaic backwards morality. Or we try and uh, say, well, it, it, this concept of sin is just a power play. It's just trying to ostracize Uh, the sinners, and keep the righteous in power. But if we do that, I want to suggest that we're playing right into the hand of the serpent who who wants us to not believe that sin is as bad as God has said it is. 
that it doesn't, in fact, lead to death. Instead, friends, we should be like that dissenting scientist. We should recognize sin for what it is, a spiritually radioactive agent that destroys us body, mind, soul, and even society. And that should cause us to cry out with Paul in Romans 7 when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the good news is that it doesn't end there. Paul ends that phrase with this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul gets that there's an even deeper layer to our sin problem. Even if we intellectually assent to everything that we've talked about, that sin leads to death, that sin uh, deserves judgment, even if we agree with that, the problem is that we are enslaved to sin such that we can't get out from underneath it. There's no amount of spiritual willpower that can get us to stop sinning. I'm sure that you know what that feels like. Feeling like you have tried time and time and again to resist sin, but you keep doing it. You've repented time and time again. You've bargained with God saying, God, look, if you'll just deliver me from this thing, I promise I'll be a better person. I promise I'll stop doing this. But you keep doing it. Maybe again, you resonate with what Paul says in Romans 7. I don't understand my own actions For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Haven't we all been there? The solution to this problem then isn't anything that we can do. It's not just being better. It's not just doing better. It's not just trying harder. Friends, like the Israelites, we need a rescuer. We've talked about this all throughout this Exodus series. We've said that Exodus in the book points beyond itself to a truer and greater Exodus. One that delivers us from this enslavement to sin. And how is that accomplished? By the death of the firstborn of heaven. It's John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus, God's only Son, the firstborn of heaven, is the truer and greater Moses. And on the cross, He takes upon Himself the strike of judgment for sin that you and I deserve. Because of our sin, we should die But the judgment meted out on Jesus upon the cross becomes for us a life-giving strike. It's what Paul says in Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The way that we're restored to this life is by being united to Jesus. You see, whenever we put our trust in Him, whenever we put our faith in Him, there is a vital union that's affected between us and Jesus. And in that moment, our sin is placed upon Him, and we are made to share in His perfect righteousness. 
Meaning that that life-giving connection with God that we lost in the fall is restored. The tap is turned back on to life, full, true life. But not just that. It's not only that. Not only are we restored to life by our union with Christ, but also we share in his status as firstborn. This is what Matt read for us earlier from Romans 8 when it says the Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Well, what are we, what are we heirs to then? Well, that's what we say at the end of the Apostles' Creed. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. You see, united to the firstborn of heaven, we share in those things as well. We share in the life in the kingdom of the new heavens and the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit and the glory of the beatific vision. One day seeing God face to face. And the greatest part of it is that we'll have all of this forever. You see, in the end, Satan, the great deceiver, is himself deceived. He's hoodwinked. He tells Adam and Eve that they can sin and surely live, but the opposite happens. They sin and death, the curse of death, comes onto them in creation. And on the cross, it even looks like the curse of death has come onto the Son of God himself. You have to imagine that it seemed like to Satan that his great deception worked. But we know how the story ends, don't we? Jesus dies, yes, of course, but it doesn't end there. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? In conclusion, I want to submit to you this afternoon that the, that question that Jesus leaves with Mary and Martha, do you believe this, is the key to coming to terms with this final plague. You may not understand this final plague, this final plague may not sit well with you, but do you believe this? Do you believe that the very same God who willed the death of the firstborn in Egypt would also will the death of His Son, the firstborn of heaven? Do you believe that the very same God who judges sin might, in the person of Christ, bear that same judgment for us? Do you believe that the same God who issues the death penalty for sin would, in the person of Christ, undergo the same penalty Himself? If you do believe this, you have all the reason you need to trust God when he does things that you don't understand. And frankly, when life goes as you don't expect it to. Why? Because you can trust this God that puts himself on the cross in Christ and rises again for you to new life. And so friends, the question that we're left with this afternoon is this. Do you believe this? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we admit that we treat sin 
casually. That we're like that bureaucrat that tries to downplay it. Father, would, through your Holy Spirit, would you show us the sin in our life and the sin in the world, and would you help us to flee it, to flee from it unto your Son. Thank you, Father, that you have given us Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would find in him the life that we are so desperately searching for, the life that we want now, but also the life that you promise eternally. Would you comfort us with this great gospel? We ask it all in your son's name. Amen.